on the viewpoint. We're talking Charlotte Matleke, not the 150th anniversary since she was born, but of course the academic hospital just down the road from where we are that just over two weeks ago suffered a fire, or not even, sometime, it was in April actually, it shattered the oncology services altogether. More than 800 patients had to be transferred to other health facilities in the province after the fire gutted two blocks of the 1,000-bed hospital on April 16, 2021. Now, we were told that services would resume on 3 May after a detailed structural assessment is completed. We have approached the Department of Health in Gauteng, but they have not returned to us. So we go to the opposition. They'll tell us at least what we want to know. Mr. Jack Bloom, good evening. Good evening. Good to be with you. DA Shadow Minister of Health in Gauteng, sir, thank you so much for your time. Tell us what we don't know that we should know insofar as it relates to the progress of reviving services, critical services, I might add, at Charlotte Maglake. Well, in fact, the department announced more than two weeks ago that the certain sections of the hospital would open. They said that they were structurally safe and that they're waiting for a safety clearance certificate from the Johannesburg City Council. Now, I don't know what the hold-up is. We also had a health committee meeting at the Gauteng Provincial Legislature two weeks ago, and I asked the CEO of, of the hospital if she knew a date when they could expect to open, and she couldn't tell me that. Uh, they do say that they want to get certain services up and running as soon as possible, gynecology and cancer especially, and I'm very concerned about the, the cancer department because, uh, you know, there's only two other hospitals that can partially assist, and if there's any delays in treatment, uh, lives are at risk. So where we are now is that we actually don't know uh, when or if it's opening and what sections are going to be opening, and we were told uh, some time ago that it would be opening. And, and now we have uh, another rise in COVID-19 cases, and, and we need those beds. To the extent that any progress has been made and that the department has been forthcoming so far as it relates to the information around that, what can you confirm to us as opposed to what is still missing in the puzzle? Well, you know, it was a great concern to know whether the the building was structurally safe and what sort of repairs had to be done. And uh, they said earlier that uh, there were sections of the hospital that the engineers had said were fine. Obviously, there's a section of the hospital, particularly around the the parking lot that that burned down and actually collapsed, uh, that would uh, have to be closed for quite some time and, and have extensive repairs. But meanwhile, what about the rest of the hospital? Uh, I think that's the question. And the fact that we, we haven't had any update, and, and patients are, are extremely disrupted. Mm, you know, anybody mm. who got their medicine there has to go to a, another facility, which may be very inconvenient for them. Uh, the cancer patients, uh, where they are communicated with for chemotherapy, they have to go to Chris Harney-Baragrath Hospital and for radiation therapy, Steve Biko Hospital, that's in another city. So there's an enormous disruption. There's also the dialysis patients. You know, mm-hmm. If you don't get dialysis uh, regularly, you can you will die. Uh, they told to go to Helen Joseph Hospital, but they're at the back of the queue, and that hospital currently got a water shortage. So, you know, it's actually it's a health crisis, and uh, we're not getting uh, up-to-date information from the Carting Health Department. 
to the extent that it is a crisis, no one is feeling it probably more than the patient who had to be evacuated and now sprung, who, who wherever they might be in other hospitals around the province. And that, if not just physically and medically at least, psychologically must be terribly difficult for them given the fact that even visits, something which you and I probably might take for granted for so long as you and I are able to go and visit friends, they don't have the option of going to visit friends. They have to be visited. And if my family was in and around Johannesburg and now suddenly I find myself at Steve Biko, it's a very different conversation, possibly a conversation only on the phone. Well, absolutely. You can imagine the trauma of being evacuated because there's smoke in the corridors. And and that was an enormous uh, evacuation effort. Uh, private ambulances joined in as well. They had to move, uh, you know, about 800 patients. Now, some of them have fortunately been discharged from the other hospitals, but, but many of them are still there. And you can imagine the impact this has had on our hospitals. I can tell you one, Edenbell Hospital, where they can't take new people because they're too crowded with, uh, you know, patients from Charlton Faircare. And uh, it's it had an impact on the entire health system uh, just at the moment when we're going to be needing every hospital bed because, uh, you know, we're in a third wave of the COVID-19 cases. And Charlton Faircare was a COVID-19 treatment center. They've got ICU beds there. And I think it's critical that those ICU beds are, are up in action as soon as possible. Um, it's an irreplaceable hospital. This is our flagship hospital. It's got uh, specialist academic functions that you can't uh, easily replace elsewhere. Uh, what's happened is that the staff of the hospital have relocated to, to other hospitals. Uh, Chris Harneberg Grant Hospital didn't, hospital did used to do chemotherapy. What they've had to do is uh, transfer uh, the, the specialist staff there, and uh, they've tried to set up a, a chemotherapy unit at, at Chris Harney Belgrade Hospital. It's, it's not ideal. Mm. In, in fact, um, you know, I really feel for, for the patients. I, I, I just call for, for uh, what I think is a, a solution, is that uh, private uh, cancer hospitals should be approached to do treatment for uh, public patients, uh, pay them to do the public patients. And in fact, the CEO of Schadenpecker Hospital, she mentioned that as an option, but she says they were waiting for money from the Treasury. That's always going to be a big challenge, isn't it, from a procurement perspective? I mean, I understand the medical reasons why you would probably want to justify such costs, and I absolutely do not take away the need to do that. But it is a conversation worth having nonetheless, the fact that whether or not there is money for such an option. Well, you know, I think they, we, we've seen, quite frankly, huge waste of money uh, in other areas. And it's, uh, and it's a massive budget. The Fountain Health Department has a huge budget, so over 60 billion rand. It's the largest budget item in the Fountain Provincial budget. Mm. It's just terribly badly spent. I can tell you now, they've spent 500 million rand on the hospital in the far west rand, the Agnagolda Shanti Hospital, uh, which they claimed would be used for COVID-19 patients they put in, uh, it's in the wrong area. I mean, it's the far west rand, it's, it's on a mine. Uh, they put in extremely expensive ICU beds, which they're never going to be using. So, you know, quite frankly, I think it's a matter of priorities. Uh, it would be very good if they could commission private hospitals to especially treat the cancer patient uh, as an interim solution, uh, mm. I think, because obviously we'd want the, the cancer unit, uh, which has, you know, the best machines. They've got very new uh, radiation machines that uh, Sharp and Care 
uh, cancer unit, it'd be nice if they got them up and running. But I think the frustration for everyone, and especially patients, is that the department isn't communicating anymore. Uh, the fact that uh, you know you asked them for a comment and they didn't come back to you, I think speaks volumes. Well, they bailed out at the last hour. It does speak volumes. Any other solutions, perhaps even pro-DA solutions, insofar as it relates to this question of public health? What is it that the DA, beyond what you have said, is advocating for, insofar as it relates to responding to this immediate health challenge, but also reforming parts of the use of the facility, and certainly in the short time, what, a month and a week, that we have picked up in the non-availability of all services at Charlotte Matleke? What do we now know that we wouldn't have known but for this fire? Well... You know, what the fire has revealed, but we knew it before, is that there's a terrible maintenance backlog and that, uh, uh, in fact, virtually every hospital, public hospital in Kharteng, uh, does not comply with the Occupational Health and Safety Act. Uh, that was confirmed two years ago when I asked the question of the Kharteng legislature. Every time that uh, the fire department does an inspection or the labor department does an inspection, the, the hospitals don't measure up. Uh, in fact, uh, the estimate to, to fix up all our hospitals to make them compliant, fully compliant, the huge amount, 6 billion rand. Uh, the amount that was estimated for Chardon Tracker was 400 million rand. So I, I would have hoped that the, the fires that we've had at other hospitals, you know, we've had four hospital fires in the last six years, and we also had that terrible fire at the Bank of Lisbon building. You would have thought that would be a, a wake-up call that uh, that they'd look at this aspect of fire safety, uh, particularly, uh, you know, you know, with with particular emphasis, but but they didn't. So I think the wake-up call is that how safe are our other hospitals? Are we mm. spending enough on maintenance? This is the real problem. Uh, that hospital uh, has had quite a few maintenance problems. The pipes are leaking. Uh, you know, a few years ago, uh, the ceiling collapsed. And uh, I think, unfortunately, uh, the lesson has been learned the hard way. Uh, we, we are awaiting an, uh, the results of investigation to the cause of the fire, mm. because, as you know, uh, the fire people who, who arrived on the scene, uh, many of them said that there weren't fire hydrants uh, with water on the, on the hospital itself. They had to go off-premises. There was a, a lot of criticism about it. And uh, I, you know, I think we need to know the cause of that fire and, and whether our other hospitals are safe. Final question then, insofar as it relates to the work of the DA in Parliament. This clearly is something that could very well find itself on the top agenda of the Portfolio Committee for Health, or is there already? Any responses then from Mr. or Dr. Lomo? Well, um, you know, that's the national parliament. I do communicate with my colleague in parliament, uh, Sibir Guarube. Uh, she sits on that health committee. Mm. And uh, I think uh, the DA has uh, mentioned, uh, has advocated for a very long time about fixing up our hospitals. But I have to tell you, the problem is there's just, you know, wasteful spending, massive corruption. Uh, the Gauteng Health Department is notorious for, for corruption scandals. We've seen the, the PPE corruption scandal last year. And I, I think that if the government uh, really wants to have a national health uh, system, they're going to have to prove that the public health system can work a lot more efficiently and effectively because at the moment there is uh, terribly bad spending, there's corruption, and, and the people who suffer most are, are patients. 
Let's leave it there. Thank you so much, Mr. Jack Bloom, DA, Shadow Minister of Health in the Gauteng province. That was the conversation number one of Hashtag Health on Monday, specifically responding to some questions and possible anxieties, if not probable anxieties, for you who sits at home and wants to find out what is going on with services at Charlotte Matleke Hospital. Well, we know now that there's absolutely nothing taking place there. I know as well because one of my family members was due for a scheduled appointment with her um, medical practitioner. She was told by security guard, nothing's happening here. Nothing is about to happen here anytime soon. That's me being as honest. And of course, that me being honest is the security guard to my family member. 2120 after this, health on Monday, the second story. on SFM. Health on Monday, the second story, Dr. Malcolm Miller is on the line. He is one of the investigators of the study that I'm going to refer to just very briefly. Also an ICU specialist at Groteskir Hospital, Bedikarp. According to a prospective observational study from 64 hospitals in 10 African countries, published in The Lancet, death rates among adults in the 30 days after being admitted to critical care with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 infections appear considerably higher in Africa than globally. The study estimates that the provision of dialysis needs to increase approximately sevenfold and ECMO approximately 14-fold to provide adequate care for the critical, critically ill COVID-19 patients in the study. What many would have thought is going to happen is in fact happening if the study is anything to go by, that COVID-19 is more than more uncovering some of the ills in many spaces in public service. In this instance, public health care services, not just in the country, but the continent over. Good evening, Malcolm. Thanks for your time. Dr. Malcolm Miller, are you there? Yes, yes. Hi. Indeed. Good evening. Thank uh, you for hi. your time. I don't know if you were able to catch what I had said in the introductory paragraphs, yes? Yes, yes, I heard it. Thank sure. you. Sure. Do you want to just give us an overview of the study? Yeah. Um, well, it was an observational study which we embarked on um, in May last year, really to gather information on what our patient outcomes were in Africa compared to, to the rest of the world because we didn't have a lot of data to guide how to manage these patients um, with severe COVID disease in lower middle income countries. And um, we collaborated with 10 countries across Africa and um, it was really just to gather information and to guide future management of, of COVID during the, the height of the pandemic. What is most concerning in the seven-month study that you conducted from the 10 countries, and if I may, the 10 countries in discussion are Egypt, Ethiopia, Ghana, Kenya, Libya, Malawi, Mozambique, Niger, Nigeria, and South Africa. So you've got a bit of the Arab in Egypt, you've got East Africa, you've got West Africa, and you've concentrated as well in the southern part of the continent. What are some of the things that were most disconcerting in the context of whatever the study found? Yeah, I think as we expected in our sort of resource constraint <clears throat> environment, we, we we see greater mortality compared to the developed world, and um, we really needed to understand why that might be. And and I think some of the information that we got from the study revealed that we've got limited access to. 
let's say, advanced uh, ICU support like dialysis, like ECMO. But in some countries, about half of the patients didn't have access to ICU beds, ICU resources, and, and ICU trained uh, doctors. And then basic things like monitoring and oxygen was also quite scarce in some of our, our, our African countries. Can we just quickly talk about this um, medical jargon? ECMO stands for extracorporeal <laughs> membrane oxygenation. Do you just want to explain what that means and how its absence is actually cause for concern? Well, that's quite an advanced form of of support in in patients who who need support of their sort of ventilation to oxygenate the blood or oxygenate the body and to really perform the work of the lungs. And in in patients who have severe COVID pneumonia, their lungs are so diseased that uh, we can offer them a form of support that um, takes over the function of the lungs. And this is really quite a sort of an advanced form of, of, of ICU support, which will only really be available in in tertiary or academic hospitals where there's quite a high level of care and high level of of, of ICU um, let's say uh, expertise available and and that's offered I think in very limited um, settings in Africa. Of course, in the context of these high rates, I mean, we're talking about nearly half of those adults in 30 days after being admitted to critical care because of COVID or suspected cases of COVID die. That's more than double the worst case scenario of the global average, which sits at 23%. Now, specifically, one of the factors is the fact that it is high intensive care resources that are required that are absent but probably more damning, and this is something I want you to respond to, please, is the fact that even some of those resources that are there, there is an underutilization of those resources in those high intensive care facilities as being reported in the 10 countries as something which is a bane. Yeah, well, I think just to, to, to comment firstly on, on access to sort of advanced form of ICU care, we obviously have quite limited um, resources, so if we offer these advanced forms of support to a particular patient, we end up compromising other patients who, who need to access that type of support at the same time. So, so we definitely have a limited pool of resources to, to, to offer that quality or standard of care for these patients. And then... I have read a few comments from colleagues in in other parts of Africa where they have equipment that has been donated or equipment that has been funded by 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 other organizations that are still standing in plastic wrapping and never being utilized, probably because there's just no expertise to to to, to use this uh, form of, of, of equipment or 
the um, the resources that have been donated to to some parts of Africa. So I think that's uh, a separate problem that that probably needs to be addressed in a, in another in another forum. As we look to gain some intelligence from this report, specifically now, how can we, from a South African bias, look to change this figure? We do know that South Africa, for the most part, has dodged many bullets in terms of what would have been the sentiment and anticipation of how COVID might affect the country to the reality on present facts. I'm asking this question particularly insofar as it relates to the imminent, as it were, third wave that many people are anticipating to hit this country. What so far have we learned that we ought to use as intelligence to mitigate what effects a third wave could otherwise have? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. I think, uh, obviously, apart from all the um, social behavior um, precautions that we need to, 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 to adhere to, we obviously need to focus quite heavily on vaccine rollout. I think that's Fundamental in terms of trying to to limit the, um, the 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 emergence of a third wave and and the actual uh, extent of a third wave because vaccination certainly prevents um, progression to to severe disease and then I think ultimately we need to appreciate that um, we do need more resources to try and manage um, this type of, of, of public health crisis where we we have healthcare facilities overwhelmed when um, our resources are, 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 are saturated. So there's definitely a, a desperate need to increase the number of ICU beds, ICU trained personnel to look after these uh, critically ill patients. But I think our focus should be on trying to, to, to prevent the emergence of a severe outbreak um, by, by vaccination. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your thoughts there, Dr. Malcolm Miller, ICU specialist at Grotesgeer Hospital, also one of the investigators of this study in The Lancet. 2131, and this is probably an appropriate time just to go back 100 years ago when the Bullhook Massacre took place in the mountains of Ndabelanga in the Eastern Cape when the leader of Amasraeli, that is the Church of God and Saints of Christ, Baba, the late Inokam Gijima, together with many of his followers, were massacred. 168 of them were massacred. Of course, Mgijima was trialed. You know the story as to how trials were in that era 100 years ago. It is a commemoration worth the history of this country telling. Sure, we can learn about the Anglo-Boer War, and we should because it has since been referred to as the South African War, just as much as we might want to learn what happened in the Great Depression and in the First World War and Second World War. Those wars are external to the war that was ravaging and ripping apart the soul of the African on the African continent and soil. The Bullock Massacre is one such story that has not, in its 100 years, received the kind of telling it has. Many congratulations to the University of Pretoria in partnership with the University of Johannesburg for the conference or seminar that is taking place. Started today and continues tomorrow. We had a conversation of and about that with Dr. Tsepom Vulane Moloy last week. It continues tomorrow. Certainly scour social media and just acquaint yourself 
yourself with a history that if we do not know, of course, we may be doomed to repeat. 2132, good evening, everybody.